Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Mobile hunters, if you're interested in upping your mobile game, then head to tetherednation.com and check out their saddle gear. There are a few things that you can buy that will actually help you become a better deer hunter or give you the freedom to hunt any tree or any situation. This reason is why I started saddle hunting in the first place and why I use Tethered's gear. I can honestly say that Tethered's saddle gear has changed how I hunt for the better. Big tree, little tree, from the ground, it doesn't matter. I'm untethered by my gear to hunt the best setup for the situation instead of hunting for a tree that my gear can use. My current course setup consists of the Phantom Saddle, Tethered One Sticks, and the Predator Platform, and along with an assortment of their accessories. So if you want to up your mobile game, head over to tetherednation.com. If you're like me, you spend a lot of time pouring over maps, looking at weather data, all in an effort to help predict when and where my best times are to hunt. It'd be nice if there was a reliable source with all this information in one place. Enter the Spartan Forge app. Unlike some other predictive apps on the market, Spartan Forge was created from military combat intelligence experience tailored for hunters and stands at the nexus of machine learning and whitetail deer hunting. No more man-made algorithms. This is a predictive model based on real GPS collared deer data historical and predictive weather, and the next level of mapping imagery, all at my fingertips. I've had an opportunity to use the desktop version of Spartan Forge last year and recently the beta version of the iOS app, and it has replaced all of my other mapping tools. Head over to SpartanForgeAI.com to sign up today to get your place in line as the mobile app launches soon. This podcast is brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. Skull Brew Coffee roasts premium single-origin coffee, guaranteeing to deliver the freshest coffee directly to your doorstep. The kicker? They're 2% for conservation certified and donate 10% of their proceeds back to organizations who support the interests of our hunting community. So go to SkullBrewCoffee.com and pick up one of their three killer roasts and fuel your hunt and fill more tags with Skull Brew Coffee. Welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 252. Today I'm joined by my buddy Troy Pottinger to talk hunting rugged mountain whitetails and using scrapes to get it done. So stay tuned. What is up, everyone? Happy Wednesday to you. Hope you are doing well. Hope you are feeling fine on this October. I don't know. What is this? The 18th, 19th, the 20th, I think, is is what we're looking at. So we are squarely in that time frame where it is uh, it is pretty much go time. Had a good hunt this past weekend. Uh, went to a spot that I had never hunted before. I scouted last year with my good buddy, Greg Litzinger. 
we we did a little scouting session together and we found this particular area and it was an area I had talked about previously where I had a camera stolen and I actually ended up taking <clears throat> what I had laying in my garage just like a junk camera that kind of works kind of doesn't work and I tossed it up knowing that if it got stolen I wouldn't be too too awfully mad about it um I mean, it still would tick me off and it takes, doesn't take great pictures, but I, I just wanted to see what was there. And lo and behold, <clears throat> the last time I pulled the cameras, there was, <clears throat> excuse me, one decent buck that was on that camera. And so I was like, you know, I'll, I'll figure out a time where I'll throw, throw a hunt at it. The access is kind of being honest. It's kind of crappy, um, to do it right. Uh, there's there, there actually, there isn't really any easy access necessarily. Um, and I ended up just hunting it this weekend because the other places that I would maybe prefer to hunt you know, either the wind wasn't quite right for it, or, you know, we have this cold front that, that hit on Sunday, at least in my area and into Monday and Tuesday. And I was like, you know what, those are going to be the days that are going to be better to kind of make a dive into some of my better spots kind of for the first time. And the wind's going to be better for those days. And Saturday, it was kind of hot, you know, uh, cooler morning, but as it went on, I think we got up into like the mid eighties. So it wasn't going to be, I didn't feel like it was going to be great and definitely not worth burning a, a, a sit on a good spot. So I made the hike in here and I, I, the other thing too, is I really wanted to see what the wind was going to do in there because I had no clue. I'd never hunted it before. I needed to start wind mapping it a little bit. And so I was like, all right, well, I got a South wind. I feel like I can make a South wind work in there. Um, and so let's just go throw a flyer at it and see what happens. So I get in there first light, had a shooter come in, uh, kind of picked him up <clears throat> late. It's so thick in this area that I don't really see deer even what I, I even think when the foliage comes down off, off the trees that I'm still not going to see deer until they're kind of right on top of you. Um, and that's kind of what was the case. I mean, he was maybe, <clears throat> excuse me, 25 yards, maybe when I saw him and I just saw the back leg, knew it was a deer. And then, uh, he picked his head up from behind some brush and saw his, saw his head and saw his antlers. And immediately it was like, that's, that's a shooter. And so he kind of circled, you know, away from me a little bit and was kind of heading North. And so, I wasn't going to get real aggressive with him or anything like that. You know, these deer in hindsight, all the deer that are in here were super calm. And so I know that I'm in kind of a, in very close to a bedding area and may even be between two bedding areas. I'm not exactly sure what is kind of to my, I guess my West or my, my Northwest a little bit. Um, that seems to be where all the deer were, were coming from essentially. So I let him get out of eyesight and I just gave him a soft grunt just to say, Hey, there's a, there's an adolescent, a young buck that's in the area. He's not challenging you, but I'm just letting you know I'm here. And he turned right around, came, made a scrape, was kind of angry, circled back behind me, wanted to see where that deer was at, didn't see the deer. He got a little spooky. I still didn't have a shot at this point. I mean, he was only at 15 yards when he made that scrape. I couldn't get a shot. There was brush. When he circled back behind me, I mean, there wasn't really anything between he and I, but I'm kind of in this really thick area. So many saplings that he was probably, I think, the closest 10 yards, and I just could not get an arrow through anything. So I just kind of watched him and he got a little spooky there for a second and stood for like five minutes, just kind of check things out and then just walked back North the direction he was coming from. And there's, I have an idea in talking to Greg afterwards that there's a bed that we had found not too far from maybe the direction he was coming. So he might've been just kind of filtering up, you know, from the, the area in which he might've been bedding. That's, that's, that's a possibility, but not a hundred percent sure. I was actually going to hunt that bed. Um, but decided that I preferred to kind of hunt this, this area that was kind of North of the bed. Um, the access was actually easier for the bed. It would have been, it'd been easier in and out. Uh, but I was just intrigued by the spot and also wanted to just even see if my camera was there or not. So then he kind of moved off and, uh, like a half hour later, a buck comes out, you know, from the South of me 
and you know out of this kind of thick nasty stuff and there's a this area that i was hunting you know the reason there was a camera there was there was a primary scrape and there was also a signpost rub and this buck comes out from the south and just starts hammering on that signpost rub and i just saw him at the last second when he started when he kind of cleared the thick stuff and into like this very small opening still not open enough to shoot but i could at least see him and he comes in and just starts ramming the signpost rub and and ripping that up and then he basically filtered up right past me at five yards in front of me the one place where i have a shot and when i saw him after i got a a look at him as he was kind of approaching me i had my bow in my hand and i just realized that he he wasn't the he wasn't the one i'd seen previously he was smaller younger um good looking bucks i just filmed him for a while and watched him for like 15 minutes just do deer things which is awesome best way to get an education is just be around deer and so I spent 15 minutes with him, watching him, filming him, watching him scent check things and, and stuff like that. And it was it was killer. Good looking eight point. Um, just a little little young, probably two and a half year old, maybe a three and a half year old. Um, but he needs he needs another year and he'll be if he makes it, he'll be a dandy buck next year. Um, so that was kind of the hunt for the most part. Saw a handful of does too, seven does in the morning. And, you know, I wasn't near a food source. Like I said, I was in a in a in a bedding area and some really thick, nasty cover. And I'm basically was able to kind of learn, you know, what some of these deer are doing in this area. So I'm a little bit more educated for the, uh, for the next hunt that I might have in the, have in this spot. And I'll look to probably get back there sometime that week, right before Halloween. But speaking of Halloween, we know that scrapes and stuff become uh, a, a big factor as we kind of move into the rest of October here. And I have a killer guest for you guys today. I have Troy Pottinger on hunts in Idaho mountain hunter. He's maybe one of the best mountain hunters you'll ever talk to. He's hunting not just mountains, but in areas where he's not the apex predator. He's got grizzlies. He's got mountain lions. He's got wolves that the, that the bucks he's chasing are having to contend with. Not to mention just the harsh winters and the snow and stuff like that that kind of come along comes along with hunting in the Idaho mountains. Uh, he's also a big scrape guy. He likes to hunt over scrapes. Kills a lot of the, a lot of his bucks in and around scrapes, not just primary scrapes. But he also has a very specific method by which he makes mock scrapes that that are super effective. So we talk about all those things with Troy today. So super cool, uh, super cool show today. Super stoked to have him on. Before we do that, though, quick reminder, head over to SkullBrewCoffee.com. Use the promo code TRUTH or TFTS21. Get yourself some savings. Check out the pour over travel packs. Don't drink shitty coffee on your travel hunts this year. And then also <clears throat> head to TruthFromTheStand.com. Go to the merch tab and pick yourself up some dope Truth merch. TFTS promo code or TFTS21 promo code to save yourself some cash there and as always i want to thank you all for listening all right folks welcome back to another episode of the truth from the stand deer hunting podcast and today i got a gentleman on that uh, i've been wanting to have on for for quite some time and you know this uh, podcast will, will come out here probably sometime mid-ish october which is kind of the perfect timing uh to to be speaking to none other than mr Troy Pottinger, as he's well known for his uh, approach to hunting scrapes, also well known for hunting very rugged country, targeting very mature deer in some of the toughest places to to, to chase deer. So, how you doing tonight, Troy? Good, Clint. I'm glad to be on the show. Yeah, man. I appreciate you making some time to jump on. I feel like we almost had like a semi podcast before we actually got on the podcast talking about shed dogs and shed hunting and stuff like that. It could have been a whole session unto itself. Yeah, you probably should have hit record now. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? It's like I've only been doing this for six years. You know, some, you know, I probably should have hit record. I still haven't learned. It's still, I'm still a rookie, man. Still a rookie. Um, well, maybe, maybe down the road uh, in the spring we hit that because that's a pretty good topic nowadays. 
yeah, in the spring. For, for sure, especially, you know, and we'll get into this in more detail, but, you know, especially whenever, you know, you're targeting specific bucks. And I know, you know, finding sheds for you has been one of those things that's also helped kind of unlock, you know, where a mystery buck might be spending a lot of times and becomes, you know, a critical piece of the puzzle for you in many cases if you're able to get onto a, you know, a shed of a specific deer you're chasing. So I definitely think we should cover that in the spring. Be happy to. Yeah, that'd be a good time. And I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of merit, um, in that gets overlooked and misunderstood out there when it comes to if a big whitetail buck sheds, um, early, like they do in your, I don't know when they shed in your country, but out here, my big ones usually shed well before they have to migrate. And they're, it's a lot of times it's a dead giveaway of their favorite hideout after a lot of pressure at right. the end of the season. Yeah. Yeah. They shed a little later here. I mean, some of the earlier ones, you might be able to get a little Intel. I'm trying to think, you know, probably, I mean, you know, I basically in the area that I hunt, I will hunt late season all the way through until the end of January. And you'll start seeing some deer dropping around then every so often. Like, and I feel like the big drop doesn't really happen until sometime in like, february-ish if if i'm not mistaken like that seems like when when the majority of them would drop but i basically get through like a full hunting season including late season and they're still and they're still holding and so you know you can definitely find some of their hidey holes um for late season specifically and if you if you get i don't want to say get lucky but if you have a buck that's gonna summer and winter in the same place because they have a consistent food source or something like that that's in that consistent area it's like it's not uncommon for them to return um but, you know, that's also, you know, a couple other pieces of intel you got to kind of, you know, put together. I don't know that I would base it all on just finding the finding a shed, but it sounds like you're able to kind of put the pieces together a little bit better just based on how early they drop and that they're not maybe making, to your point, that migration kind of transition. Yeah, my the reason I've killed a lot of my best whitetails, oldest, biggest whitetails in the mountains, because they're... They're so worn out, their testosterone levels drop off early in this country. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times they're dropping January 1st, right around January 1st. So oh. that's definitely a little earlier than you're seeing them drop. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, you'll, you'll, get, our, you'll get the the occasional, like, outlier, you know. But a lot of times around here, it would probably more, um, it, maybe he's sick, you know, or he had an extremely hard rut or got nicked by a car it's something like that it's usually some type of stress is when you'll see them drop early around here not just from you know normal you know not just a normal drop necessarily right and i think our normal drop out here is early because of the stress these animals uh endure they these mountain bucks it's a whole different lifestyle you know what i mean yeah we could go into that in depth you know too down the road yeah, for sure. Well, I think that's an appropriate place to kind of just pivot real quick before we get too far down the rabbit hole of talking big mountain deer and, 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 and scrape hunting and stuff like that. But before we get jamming on all the good stuff, uh, for those that are out there that are listening that maybe haven't heard you before, I know you've been on other podcasts before, and I feel like people you know, are aware of you know who you are and kind of what you do. But for those who might be under living under a rock, so to speak, if you wouldn't mind, give us a little bit of background about you, you know, where you're from, what you do for a living. Sounds good. Uh, born and raised in Idaho, pretty much lived Idaho and Montana my whole life. And uh, for people that don't know me or that have never been out to Idaho, Idaho is a pretty diverse state. And I live up in the northern panhandle, Idaho, where 
it's a huge forest land country, uh, stuff that runs up to 10,000 feet, uh, cover that just the mountains are covered in timber. So it's just a sea of rugged timber, steep, uh, rocky, but also heavily forested country up high. And then as you drop down a little lower in elevations, you get into some really nice middle ground and, uh, I think people would call them foothills uh, out here, but they're more like little mountains probably to most people. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we got our little mountains and our big mountains. Yeah. And then, then you get, then you get down into the valley floors of where uh, I live. And it's just probably some of the nicest country on earth, Uh, beautiful rivers and lake country. And it's very green and we get a lot of precipitation out here. So this is a, kind of a highly sought after if you look up you know the history of the west and where a lot of logging has taken place it's been out in the pacific northwest and north idaho is one of those mm-hmm. was one of those hot spots and still a lot of logging it's mm-hmm. our major industry that and i would say now tourism just because it's so beautiful up here but yeah i uh, born and raised in northern idaho uh yeah spent some time in college playing football and and uh going to school in Montana. So I really haven't really left this area. I really never wanted to move anywhere else. Just I've been able to travel and hunt whitetails all over the country and in Canada. But uh, I think the mountains have me for the rest of my life and I'll just visit other places. Uh, I, I have, uh, I have taught, I've been a teacher for 25 years. Um, but I also grew up a logger's son and I, learned a lot from my dad through logging and own my own business and have for 30 years. So nice. I've kind of done both teaching's my great fall, winter, spring job to get me through the rough months of the winter. And I, and I love kids and like working with uh, the youth and coached a lot in the past, but I've always spent a ton of time in the woods too, with my, with my own business. So uh, doing all kinds, everything from logging to farming to, uh, I do a lot of, just construction now where I help people kind of build their help people build their dreams on their property, if you will. Right. You know, anything from building their roads, house sites, the food plots, everything. Right. Yeah. That's awesome, man. I mean, yeah, it's, I've not been to specifically where the area that you live in, I've been to South, uh, Western Montana and did some elk hunting there and that country. And I was just, I was down near the border of Idaho. That's in the, in the South there. And I know, I know the, Habitat is quite different, I believe, where you're at from down there, because there it was almost like high desert, really kind of dry, um, you know. Yeah. But I have a buddy who moved recently to, uh, I think you say, I think it's called Coeur d'Alene, if I'm not mistaken, I'm, yeah. if, I'm, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. I don't know that Coeur d'Alene, that's, that's, right, that's where I'm at. Oh, is that's that where, where I'm at? at? Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I'm about, I live out on Lake Coeur d'Alene. I don't live in the city, but I live about 30 minutes from Coeur d'Alene. Okay, yeah. Yeah, my buddy just actually moved from Pennsylvania to there, um, and this was his first – well, this is his first fall there. Um, So he's, you know, kind of chomping at the bit to, you know, get out into the woods. And I haven't talked to him for a couple weeks, so he's he's been out by now, I'm I'm sure. But he's certainly enjoying, like, the fruits of the the West with the the, the hiking, the scouting, the elking, and the – the, the the trout fishing and <laughs> and all the uh all the things that you guys have a, an opportunity you know at your fingertips which is awesome but uh yeah it's a it's a great place to get a hunt multiple species and i mean i love a white tail buck more than anything but 
Elk hunting is really close right behind that. I killed a nice bull a couple weeks ago, early archery, and I've been chasing another one. I, I like to hunt multiple states, so I hunt eastern Washington, uh, northern Idaho, and western Montana. Uh, I try to do that annually. Nice. Uh, but, no, it, you're right. It's This is a pretty um, amazing place when it comes to diversity. Yeah, yeah, and hopefully I'm going to make it out there next year. That's my plan is to go out and visit him next year and do a little uh, a little elk hunting or maybe even maybe even some whitetail hunting. So we'll if I do, we'll have to uh, we'll have to connect and uh, and have a live face to face chat. It'd be nice. Yeah, I got the perfect sports bar to meet you guys at. <laughs> perfect, awesome. We'll watch it. We'll watch. <laughs> we'll watch some ball and and, and throw a few back and talk uh, and talk bow hunting. It'll be it'll be it'll be perfect. Perfect. Uh, perfect guy vacation for me but uh no that'd be cool i think you're gonna enjoy it out here with your bud yeah yeah for sure it's uh yeah it can't be bad man i'm in the west i'll be chasing critters with a bow in hand so (laughs) you know there's not too much could be bad you know be bad with that but uh so yeah i've followed you for a little while from afar we have a couple mutual mutual buddies i know your buddies with you know my friend Bo out in you know out in pittsburgh and i believe your buddies with another buddy of mine ryan glitzky who's like a, a friend of mine that i you know do some scouting with and and, and stuff like that and so i've kind of known and have followed what you've been doing from from afar so to speak and know that you know you're hunting mature bucks number one you know mountain mountain bucks and you're doing it in some of the most rugged areas you could possibly imagine a whitetail would live and in some places people probably think that whitetails don't live in those areas if you know if people aren't familiar Tell me a little bit about the area that you're hunting specifically, like a little bit about, you know, the, the terrain, the topography, the habitat, the vegetation, the things like that, and just kind of how diverse and rugged this area is. Well, the country that I hunt is from, from Eastern Washington, all the way across to Western Montana through Northern Idaho. A lot, it's pretty similar all the way across. They, uh, and, and so are the whitetails. It's, a uh, it's a very dense, thickly uh, lush vegetation, uh, ground vegetation with timber canopy that runs for hundreds of miles. So it, it's just um, it's just a lot different than hunting, say, river bottoms or farm country where you're going to put eyes on an animal a lot. Mm-hmm. This country has such a vast security cover and and a huge presence to it that it's I, I really believe it's pretty intimidating for most bow hunters when it comes to whitetails out here. Uh, and it's a lot of it's because the first time you ever see a, one of these big mature bucks, it's probably going to be the one chance you get at him and stand. Mm-hmm. And it's rarely ever going to be with binoculars or driving up a road. Um, trail cameras are extremely important to me because of how, uh, just how great the cover is and how vast this country is. Uh, so there's a lot of like, you look at it and, and you, you know, you, I've had guys come out from all over the country and elk hunt with me. And they, uh, most of them will say with me when they're out elk hunt with me in this big country, they're like, you hunt whitetails here. <laughs> and I say, yeah, you know, some of my, some of my best bucks live real in real close proximity and share the same ridges and, saddles and mountains and clear cuts and grown in heavily grown in clear cuts and timbered mountains with with the elk and they (laughs) they live at that elevation too so so yeah it's just this if you you know for your listeners if you if you picture just a 
rugged, I mean, steep, rugged mountains that are heavily timbered and heavily vegetated, tons of, tons of food, uh, native feed for mm-hmm. elk and deer in every direction. There's no one central local uh, food source. Um, there's so much feed they can't eat it all. It's kind of a, neat, a unique situation out here. And one thing that's helped make it that way is that we actually practice um, healthy forest management out in the West out here, and especially in northern Idaho, where some of the best feeding and bedding areas for the whitetails are either newer clear cuts or old ones that have grown up so thick that you can't walk through them. Right. You know, and then there's a lot of big timber, too, that butts up against that. So just a really unique country. The uh, mountains are not forgiving. They're rugged. They're the, the conditions that are part of mountain whitetail hunting. And, and again, I haven't, I haven't rifle hunted for a deer since the 90s. Wow. So all I've done is bow hunted them and all public land, uh, do-it-yourself stuff, big country, big woods. So yeah, there's some, there's definitely some obstacles thrown at you that are, that'll wake you up when you start diving into this. I've, I've known a lot of guys over the years that have moved from the Midwest out here because they wanted to chase the elk dream and get into the whitetails. And the first thing they'll say to me is once they start diving into these whitetails out here, they'll just say, they'll say, Troy, it is just literally a whole different ball game. I mean, I, where do I even start is, yeah. is what I hear from a lot of guys, which, which I understand you know, my, my advantage is uh, I'm 51 and I've lived in this country and hunted this country, starting with my dad back when I was five, you know, trailing him through the woods. Right. So, you know, it's just ingrained in me. I love every ask. I, I love the challenge of it. I love yeah. the factor that, that it's not easy, you yeah. know, and, and that we do actually have some bucks that can reach an old age because of the vastness and the ruggedness and the cover that's out here. We right. do, you know, I, you look at a few of the bucks I've killed over the years, and I, I can usually target a five, six, or seven-year-old every year if I do my homework. Wow. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they got plenty. I mean, they, they have a lot of predators, of course, right? But they also have plenty of opportunity to to hide or be scarce if, 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 they're, if they're smart, especially when they start making it to that older, older age class to get a little bit more um, – experience i guess you know it gives them a better opportunity to 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 say to stay scarce but there's one thing that you touched on and you know i I like hunting big woods it's one of my favorite things to hunt and it's funny whenever i think of big woods because you know around here and a lot of what i will hunt that is you know big woods for around here in general would be you know probably anything from like thirty thousand to like a hundred couple thousand acres you know what i mean those are probably like the lots and, and probably on average, it's probably closer to like 70 to a hundred thousand, you know, of kind of unbroken, unbroken timber. And that, yeah. that in itself, you know, is, you know, a big chunk in, in, in daunting, but what you're dealing with out there, just like the sheer, the sheer vastness of that country, unless you've hunted it before is almost unimaginable. And I, and I know even walking into some of the big, like I, I took on a big piece of, big woods public this year to kind of break down and try to figure out and I have a couple good deer that are there and I'm pretty stoked on, on hunting it. And I know when I walked into it, I was kind of telling myself like, Hey, this might be like a couple season process to even to have like a, you know, the, where I would consider, you know, an opportunity to have some decent hunts, you know, and I was kind of full well knowing that it could be a process and I kind of lucked out, but you're breaking down such larger chunks that they're even much more intimidating than the piece that I, pieces I've been kind of playing with. So how do you go about breaking down an area that's as vast as the country is that, that, that you're hunting in? 
you know, you know, so I guess let's do a scenario here. It's like, let's say you're headed to a new area. We've dropped Troy off somewhere in Idaho where he's never been. And you know that there's good mountain whitetails in there. Where do you, where do you start and how do you start breaking down an area that's so big? Right. Well, I've, I've at least seen it on a map. I can promise you that. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, no, to, to start everything now, um, where I'm at with my approach nowadays is I always, everything starts with a map, satellite imagery and topo combined. And I've taught this in my boot camps with guys and I show them firsthand. I literally do a split screen hmm. and I dissect the elevations that I prefer based on decades of just learning where these whitetails like to survive with the wind and the thermals based on the size of the mountains and the elevation and the habitat. And then I, you know, I, I break down all the topography, uh, what makes sense, uh, slope for certain times of the year, how hot it is out. You know, I open up August 30th mm-hmm. and I finish December 24th. So I'm going through the three seasons of hunting as, right. as far as uh, summer, fall and winter. I get to hunt those three seasons. And all of these animals are driven to survive based on, you know, shelter and food and, and procreation. So for me, it all starts with those maps nowadays. And then when I get draw or I jump into the woods where I want to head, I've already got a heck of a game plan in my mind, specific terrain based features, elevations and habitat that I find by combining those maps. Um, I've already got a really good idea where the best security cover is the best thermal advantage, wind advantage for a buck to have everybody outplayed and to survive a lot of years. And then of course, those terrain based driven, you know, a funnel out here isn't anything like a funnel in Iowa and I've hunted Iowa and I've hunted the flat ground. Mm. It's nothing like a pinch. I mean, my pinch might equate to, a specific long ridge line that runs two miles, but because of where it's located away from roads, I'll get a lot more daylight traffic through a couple saddles than say the guy two ridges over that's too close to a road and too close to noise. Um, he'll get a lot of nighttime traffic and his will look just as good as mine habitat wise. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah. So I dive in, uh, to a piece of ground, uh, I've already broken it down in, extensively via maps. And then I go in and start looking for what I need to see as far as sign goes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one thing that I think gets overlooked and gets misled, especially if you're a mountain bow hunter, like I am, and I'm hunting several million acres, yeah, not a million, several million acres between my three States. Um, I think one thing that really gets misread in the woodsmanship of being a true whitetail guy uh, is being able to decipher the year-old, six-month-old, one-month-old, right now sign that can actually mean something to you even the next year if you know what you're looking for. And, And that's one reason why those big community scrapes for me come into play because those that type of sign is decades and decades and decades of production for a hunter can't or it can be it can equate to to a lot of uh, uh, real positive hunts over 10 20 years 
if uh, if you know how to play it right. You know, I, it was funny you bring this up because today on Instagram, I posted a picture of a community scrape that I've been hunting for over 20 years off of a ridge that I've taken four or five of my best whitetail bucks ever over 20 plus years and my biggest Idaho buck ever. So yeah. it just, and I got two bucks there right now that are just cool bucks. I mean, they're not quite giants yet, but that place just produces based on the aforementioned, all the different, uh, just characteristics that I just spoke about earlier. Yeah. Um, it has, that spot has everything. Yeah. The security cover, the feed, the elevation, the advantage for a big buck to stay alive. And when you take a big buck out of that mountain and that spot, another one will find it within a year or two or even within weeks and, and move right in just because of what the thermals and the wind and the cover and the feed and the water, all everything's there for him right. to his advantage, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, no, no, it totally makes sense, man. And you, there was a lot of stuff there to, um, to, to, un, to unpack <laughs> as far as, you know, your, your, your approach and, you know, like the things that you're kind of keying in on and stuff like that. And so the first thing I want to start with, like you mentioned this and it's really interesting because this was something that, you know, I mean, I'm still working on a work in progress with it. And, you know, I think that's the one thing I love about bow hunting is like, you can always get better at it like even when you know certain things you can always you know up your game you know and, and elevate oh. that knowledge and yeah you know and you and you mentioned the woodsmanship and I, and I will say you know when I started out hunting as a kid you know I hunted our back 40 you know in Pennsylvania and it wasn't until I got older where I decided I wanted to start venturing out into bigger country and stuff like that and you know and just I wanted room to roam I wanted room to be mobile I wanted to be able to be aggressive and mess up one deer and and if I mess up then I'll learn and then I'll be better for the next setup or whatever the case was and that just kind of was my mentality and it and it made it um painstakingly obvious that I needed to up my when I started hunting more big wood settings it, it was obvious I needed to up my woodsmanship like I knew some things but my ability to see something and know what it meant, like in the in the midst of the hunt, was needed to be, to be sharpened. And you mentioned that deciphering the sign in real time is critical when you're hunting these big places, because it's just I'm imagining because it's like it doesn't it doesn't come up everywhere, and so you have to really know what you're looking at. So can you kind of I guess talk about like sign like deciphering you know what how old rubs are when you're finding them and knowing like is this like huntable now or not huntable now how are you discerning that well i'll yeah i uh when i go into an area i don't even get excited about a spot unless i see a lot of traditional signs mm -hmm. even historical um, like even when you if you see historical sign like you're, you're liking that because you're like this place is being used even if there's nothing that's fresh you're looking at it going this is historically well, a place where deer want to spend time. This is what I want to see. I want to see more than just historical. I, I want to see, I want to see traditional historical sign that shows me years and years of a big white tail liking this area. Mm -hmm. And then I want to see right now signs saying they're still there. They're, they're even, they're here right now. Right. But I, I want to, because what does that tell you about a great mature buck hideout area that tells you that the the deer will teach you everything mm -hmm. and i think what a lot of guys miss out on it everybody wants to jump into the latest trend mm -hmm. or the cool new catchphrase or dive into something that's a hot fad but the truth is if you 
in big woods, in big mountainous country like I hunt, the only thing that really works is what the deer show you and tell you. Yeah. And they'll let you know if you stop and really pay attention yeah. and break down and decipher old sign, historical sign, traditional sign. I mean, I'm looking for, I always look for trails that look like they've been there for decades. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I'm not saying they're going to stand out like a sore thumb. Yeah. Um, because a trail in the mountains with a low deer density isn't going to look like anything in the river bottom that has 50 deer traveling it all the time. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Do you hear what I'm saying? Yeah, 100%. So, so I, I'm looking for that. And then I'm looking for those rubs and scrapes. I love finding trees that are an area that's just got all the habitat a buck needs to not have to move and hardly even move during the day. And then it'll have, I'll find rubs that I can tell are 20, 30 years old, all the way up to very fresh. There's a big guy or two living in the area right now, rubs. So it's putting all of those pieces together. You know, the scrapes uh, are positioned in accordance with where the doe family groups overlap his big core area. And I put all those pieces together. When, quit, guys. Sorry, my, my labs are voice. <laughs> Sorry about this. That's all right. Hey, they just wanted to join. The, they wanted to join it, the anyway, fun, man. It's all right. Oh yeah, they're playing with an antler. Um, <laughs> boy, quit. Anyway, so back to, I, I'm looking for all of the pieces of the puzzle of the big picture, and not just right now, and not just historical. I want to see it all because it tells me those bucks have a reason for wanting to stay there, right. and there's a reason why they continue to reload in that area. If that if that comes across, you know, I'm looking for those bucks that like to reload those areas that get reloaded year after year after year. And it's yeah. because an old white tail buck in those woods has everything he wants to his advantage. Um, yeah. I also break everything down and literally walk in on my first scouting mission. Doesn't matter what month of the year it is. And I'll scout a piece of ground. I don't care what month it is. I break it all down based on how, the predominant winds mixed with the everyday thermals based on every slope in that country because all the winds and thermals work a little different on slope. And I'll break all that down ahead of time. And I can pretty much pinpoint usually within four or 500 yards of where a big buck's living. And then I'll go into that area for the very first time on foot and actually get to see it firsthand and Usually it comes to fruition. I'll go in there. I'll either find his big scrapes. Find I'll, I'll find where the does are are using the area. I'll find where he's usually elevated in his position, and I'll either find a big community scrape in there, or I'll place one. And within a two or three days, I can usually get a good one on camera. Uh, rarely anymore, and, and I, it used to not be this way. Mm-hmm. It, it took me decades of trial and error, making mistakes striking out to where now I just kind of go to go with some absolutes that I have to have. And when I do that, uh, they show up and they're there. And right. I also play a biological game with them with scent. I trap whitetail. That's right. what I do. Right. I'm a trapper, right. but, but I'm not catching them with a foothold. I'm using their biology to come to me and check me out because they think I'm a new dude in town. Right. Yeah. And I mean, when you mentioned, and that was the big thing 
for me, um, and I think for any, you know, bow hunter that's, that's serious, you know, w- when they start letting, you know, the woods come to them to a degree, yeah, it, it starts to make all the difference in the world because you start to, you start to see things through the deer's eyes a little bit, as much as you can, you know what I mean? Um, absolutely. And that's when, for me, like the big woods started making more, making more sense because, you know, the hardest part, I think for me for the longest time was, and I'm still a work in progress and I fully, fully admit that was walking into like a new place. And, you know, it's been my experience. I'm curious to, you know, hear, you know, what it is kind of in, in, in Idaho, but I'll go to some of these places. And I mean, the sign's not all over the place. It's almost localized and there's just not a ton of deer. And if they are moving, they're moving in very kind of specific areas where the, where the food is at, like, because there's just not food everywhere necessarily. in some of these places where I'm hunting, it's like some of it's almost like this upcoming concert season will be all about the boots and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Just like pole timber where there's like a ton of canopy and then you'll get into pockets of where there's cuts and things like that where there's obviously where the food is and it's very kind of localized. And you'll run into like a a smattering, a sign in those places. And so some of the places you would look at on the map and that's what I had to start learning, you know, and as I learned it, I, I, I was able to more quickly find deer was that some of those classic places on the map that you would look at it and go, man, bet you there's deer there. But in the big woods, it's like, well, do they have all the other stuff there aside from like that terrain feature that suggests that they should be there? You know, because that became the more important piece was like, how many of the variables can you get together in one place? That was where you were going to find them because they were just traveling such either they weren't traveling a whole lot because they had everything or they were traveling such long distances. They were almost nomadic. So trying to figure out the travel route was near impossible in some cases. Do you kind of have the same experience out there? I I do, but I don't. I don't run into the uh, more congregated food sources mm. because the vegetation here is everywhere. Right. And so what I run into is I make sure the feed is there, but it's almost everywhere. Pretty much. You can find really good feed. If, if you know what slopes to check and right. look for, you, you look for the right terrain features and you find the right feed. So what I run into more is that security that wind advantage, that security cover. And one reason I run into this more than most, and it's, it's solely because my, I mean, I'm going through an SD card right now. We're sitting there talking. Um, and it's, I've got five bears on it, a mountain lion within five days. <laughs> nice. And I haven't got, to, Oh, 10, 10 different times a coyote or two have come through. So, right. 
if you look at the scenario I'm dealing with, I'm dealing with heavy predation. Yeah. I get as many predators. I get more predators on a camera a lot of times than I do a mature buck by mm-hmm. far. So what's the number one priority for my bucks to survive? Security, wind advantage. Not, not just a wind advantage for a human. I'm probably the least of their worries when it comes to a lion or a pack of wolves. Right. Um, but they always have to have an advantage to stay alive when, I, you know, I'm hunting. I'd say I'm hunting a buck if, if I'm fortunate enough with my work schedule and days off to hunting max 10 days a season, 15 at the most. Right. You know, let, and that's, that's half, you know, half day sits a lot of times because right. I have to go to work. But anyway, all that to say, I got this lion on camera right now at one spot, which is good for your listeners to hear. It's in there every week. <laughs> and that's a lot for a mountain lion. Yeah. You know? But, but that whitetail that's in there with him right now that I have on camera that I'm thinking about hunting, he's got to avoid that guy. Yeah. So, and, and not just leave and not just take off and leave two, three, four miles away, which he might. But my point is a little different uh, when it comes to the uh, scenario that I have to tackle. So I'm probably keyed in a little more or less on centralized food sources because my food is everywhere mm-hmm. for the most part. And I'm keying way more in on that bulletproof security wind advantage that buck has. He's literally evolved into this survival machine that he knows where he has to be to to stay alive from the predators. Right. And then I got to get in there. I got to infiltrate that. And I've got to be able to beat him at his game where he's beating mountain lions and wolves. Mm-hmm. I got to be able to, you know, kill him at 15, 20 yards. Right. You mentioned slopes and kind of understanding slopes and prevailing wind and, and what those thermals are going to do. And like, you've, you've played that game long enough to where like you can, you know, basically look at a map and go, you know, within yep. a couple hundred yards, know, you know, where you're going to be in the ball game at, I guess, give exactly. me, give me an example of like, you know, what, you know, what direction facing slope with what prevailing wind, like how would you kind of break that down and how do the thermals play on those different slopes? Um, yeah, I get a lot of South and West winds. So when I get up high on ridges and, uh, you know, I'm getting a pretty in the mountains, really the only place you can get a, a consistent at best consistent wind is up on a ridge. Mm-hmm. You're not, you're not going to ever get a good, a, a real consistent wind out on a bench or on a big flat, because mm-hmm. anytime you have terrain around you that's higher than you the wind is going to bank and swirl no matter what right in the mountains yeah so i really like ridges i like long ridges um what these big whitetails do in this country is is they will usually always position themselves at a higher elevation than any of the doe family groups to bed for the day for the most part not always but this is what i usually see for these mountain bucks and they'll use that uphill thermal all day long to keep scent track of everything below them, especially the doe family groups. And they'll usually have, you know, that prevailing wind. Um, and it depends on how hot it is. If it's real hot, they'll lay in the North and they'll let that prevailing come over the North and drop onto the back of their head. And they'll lay in there and use that uphill thermal on that North side too. Mm-hmm. So they'll literally have wind direction from both directions all yeah. day long. Yeah. Um, but you know, my point about that whole thermal change and slope changes is, is that if I'm hunting a buck on a south side, 
that thermal is going to pick up a lot earlier in a morning mm-hmm. uh, direction uphill than it is if I'm hunting him on a north side based right. on what he's doing. Yeah. And every buck is different. Every buck, you know, bucks are a little different. Some bucks prefer a, a cooler bed and a more thick cover bed, not quite as much feed. And other bucks like to bend out around and bed a little bit more in the, you know, the southwest or the southeast just to, just to have a little better access maybe to, you know, an easy bite to eat. Sometimes out here in the north, it gets pretty uh, vegetation-free in the real steep norths, right. straight timber and thick. Yeah. Anyway, all that to say, I'm playing every individual buck that I find and start breaking down his movement. And I run video, and I run a camera on video always, long extended video. And I always have a windicator in my video frame and that hanging in there. And then I always run a scrape and then I always run a picture camera too at a high elevated position on a good buck. That way I can gather a lot of info on, you know, what winds he likes to come in on, what thermals he likes to ascend or descend on, um, how he likes to approach his core bedding area or hideout area. And then how he's approaching my setup. And it always involves, I always involve a mock or a, or a natural scrape in it. Right. Man, that, that windicator is a slick move, man, because, you know, just looking through like you know, trail camera data, and, you know, and I'll use like different, you know, programs or whatever to kind of, un- to pull in, you know, data to kind of, I guess, wind map the deer and their travel and I'll aggregate them and, and things like that. But you and I both know, you know, I've, I've walked into a place plenty of times that I was unfamiliar with, with a prevailing wind and kind of like, all right, my thermal is going to do this. My prevailing is this. And I walk in and the wind is doing completely the opposite of what it's, what you would think it was supposed to do in that area, you know? Exactly. And, so, yeah. and that's why I run those windicators because yeah. when you walk in and you've read what the prevailing is, and you're sitting there looking on your phone and the prevailing says one thing, but you've got mountainous country banking winds you got to walk in and break it all down based on what that actual spot affords you, what it really does in there. So there's, there's times where I'll walk in and yeah, it's a West wind or a South wind like normal, but at that specific spot, based on everything, uh, all the terrain around me, I'll have to say, okay, this is what a West wind does to this spot. Well, I actually get a push out of the South because how it banks or vice versa. And then I combined the thermal push and I get some pretty heavy thermal pushes in this country mm-hmm. that a lot of times will over, just will literally, um, they'll strong arm the, the prevailing if the prevailing isn't seven or eight miles an hour or more. Yeah. So I deal with all that and break all that down. But the, the key is having that, that target deer rolling in, say he's checking one of my scrapes. I've got that windicator in my view in the video. And I'm watching him very closely how he approaches that based on what the actual wind is doing right there. Right. And then I can cross-reference that back here at home and say, yeah, that was a southwest prevailing wind that day, and that's how the wind was working that day. Right. So then I know that for a, for a future hunt, if yeah. I'm going to go try to kill him there. Yeah. No, it's such a good idea. It's something I'm going to actually start doing. It's funny you mentioned about you know how in some areas that thermal will just kind of drive the wind, and I kind of – it was a happy kind of accident to a degree. It worked out in my favor. Actually, this past weekend I was hunting and I was actually hunting close to some water. And especially in the morning, I didn't kind of account for it. We had a pretty good temp drop and I was hunting close to water. And so the air temperature was kind of cooler in that the, the, the water 
isn't real deep. And so it didn't have a whole lot of time to necessarily cool off, you know, relative to the, the ambient air temperature. And so when I set up, I was like, man, I'm going to have a really iffy wind here and I'll probably work for about the first three hours of the morning. And I probably got to get out of here. And as I was sitting there dropping milkweed, I could feel the wind, what was supposed to be my prevailing. I'm like, man, that's not the prevailing. I'm just paying attention to my milkweed. It was just sucking toward that water to where that water was drawing. The thermal pool was headed toward that water. It was actually keeping me safer than I had anticipated being. It was just one of those things that I don't think that'll play out for me in that position um, all season. But for early season, it was a good learning before the, before the temperatures and the the water really gets a chance to cool. It's like, I can probably cheat the wind a little bit more in that location than I typically would be able to. So, yeah, absolutely. I use a lot of water. I use a lot of creeks, Mm -hmm. creeks and steep banks. And I'll set up on the edge because I'll get that really nice thermal suck off that Creek in the mornings a little longer than I normally would get away with it, you know, and it protects me more. Yeah. And and there's times too, where I have to, you know, I'll usually know where my bucks probably going to come from. Um, outside of the, you know, the crazy, crazy part of the rut, but right. usually I'll know where he's entering and wanting to check me or check my setup out. And, uh, if, if that wind doesn't do what I need it to, and if it starts getting towards his bedding or his travel corridor towards me, I've bailed more than once on a big deer and turned around and killed him three or four days later or a month later, just because of it. Yeah. No, makes sense. Um, you mentioned elevation, man. Is there, is there a specific, and you said that, you know, you'll have bucks that want to live in the same elevation in the same country as elk and, and, and things of that nature. Um, is there a specific elevation where you find kind of like the, the sweet spot or is it really, it could be anywhere along that mountain? I, 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 I get asked this a lot and what I, what I've seen over the years is it depends on the elevation of the mountain itself and how big mm. that mountain is and what it, what it gives the animal. Right. Um, if I'm hunting what I call low country mountain whitetails, four or five, 4,000 feet max, then a lot of times I'm getting on my best bucks at that top third elevation always. Mm-hmm. And it's just because the thermals and the, the prevailing winds really work well for them if they're up higher. Um, yeah. But when I get into the big, big country, seven, eight, 9,000 foot country, then I really like my sweet spot. I've done really well of finding really nice mature bucks that have survived, usually a minimum of 3,800 feet or higher. And I like, I like 5,000 feet outside of hmm. bitter cold, you know, rut hunting when the doe family groups are lower. But outside of that, as long as there's not two feet of snow on the ground, um, I've done really well around 5,000 feet, 4,800, 42, 46, you know, any of those forties and up to five, I, I've just found that a lot of old hermit bucks, when they get old and five, six, seven years old and want to kind of be to themselves, they'll usually end up in a, in a hideout like that. That's got some elevation to it. And it, it gets them away from, it definitely gets them away from a lot of humans, especially when there's snow. Cause it's a lot of work to work uphill, yeah. you know, to get in on these animals. Yeah. And if there's no, if there's not a logging road across the top of these mountains, which a lot of them are, they don't run roads across the top of a lot of them cause they're way too rugged. A lot of times I'm finding myself going uphill, uh, to get up in where a guy, where a big boy's hanging out and he's been living and surviving for years. And, you know, he's, he's got the thermals at his advantage. There's yeah. the predators are, the predators often are down working on the weaker and easier to kill animals. 
So that's what I see. That's yeah. what I experience. Yeah, and that's interesting. You brought up a, a point that I wanted to ask was just access, you know, because knowing that, you know, you're headed up a lot, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, which, you know, depending on, you know, for a morning might not be so bad before the st- thermals start kind of moving up, but anything that you would do in the evening, like that's got to be rough on rough on the access or even rough on the exit if you're kind of, you know, as you're kind of getting out in the afternoon or getting out in the evening, or if you hunt in the morning, you want to get out, like that thermal is rising up the hill. It's like, I'm sure access is kind of probably a pain in the rear end. Well, I play that game. I've got that figured out. And the way to beat that is you always have to come in lateral elevation of your target. Yeah. You never come in underneath, never come in above. You always come in from the side. And I usually come in from the East on most of my big bucks. Um, my access usually is from the East. My setups are usually almost always set out to the east of my big bucks. You know, I'm setting up a, a, a I'm either setting up on a, a traditional long-standing community scrape that these bucks have used forever, or I've created one that kind of shocks them that I'm so close proximity to their, you know, favorite place to hide and survive that they literally it just it drives them nuts that I'm there and they haven't seen me yet. So. <laughs> But, but, but as far as access goes, I've done really well coming in lateral elevation. Mm. So I'll, uh, I'll get to the elevation I need to from a far off distance. And then I'll work my way laterally side hill or whatever I got to do to get out across, slide into a stand where I've got some terrain based features that pretty much put me kind of on a wind edge or a corner of where that big deer likes the daylight. Mm. Okay. And that makes and that's sense. all. Yeah. yeah that, I, that's all. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of detailed scouting. And yeah, you know, a lot of times I raise my bucks on my scrapes for two or three years, meaning I'm conditioning them from when they're two or three years old, they get to five or six. They feel pretty safe in there. Cause I haven't shot at them or spooked them. Right. Yeah. It's, and it makes sense that you're, coming in from the east and setting up in the east corner especially if you get a lot of prevailing westerly winds right because that you know, a lot of west a lot yeah. of south uh, quite a bit of south but i get more west than anything off the pacific ocean hmm. yeah it's interesting makes sense though i mean you know i i know that you you will like you said you you have these deer and you, and you start to condition them over these scrapes and you're targeting the the most mature deer that that, that you have behind you know, and you're, and you're a lot of times targeting a specific deer, not just a mature deer, but a very specific one. And that's typically hard enough to do in general, you know, anywhere without adding in all the rugged terrain and the predators and stuff like that, that we've already, you know, already talked about, you know, how do you go about kind of, I don't want to say selecting, but finding that particular deer that you, that you want to hunt that trips, trips your trigger. I mean, is there... You know, what exactly are you looking for? You're looking for age class, obviously killable, you know, or if, if you're, if you're having something that's maybe not shown himself in daylight or is that, does he still make the hit list potentially? You just figure out where he's daylighting and go and go from there. Or are you looking for one that's already kind of showing you that there's an opportunity to kill this deer? Well, number one, there's, there's just certain deer that, that I want, you know, I, I'll be honest. I, I want to kill the biggest deer in the mountains. Right. Um, uh, you know, there's guys that, may not want to hear that, but the truth is I want to go try to find the biggest whitetail, oldest whitetail that I can find in the woods. And that's who I want to hunt. And I get excited. I get excited about, and ages, I, 
I want to back up. Age is extremely important to me. Mm-hmm. I've got bucks. I've had bucks that were in the one sixties at four and a half, and I did not hunt them on purpose. I actually had a buck that was one seventy at four and a half, and on purpose wouldn't hunt him. And my son said I was crazy, but <laughs> I also knew I also knew that that buck had a chance to be a once in a lifetime possible two hundred inch buck one day. So you know I don't come across those very often in the public land big woods. So when I come across a rarity like that, then I'm going to let a rarity probably walk more than a great aged. Like the buck I killed last year was just an awesome old six and a half year old big four by four. Mm-hmm. And I usually, I don't shoot a lot of four by fours anymore. I, they, a lot of four by fours I let go because I am on a five or a six, six by six or a five by five or a non-typical. Right. So all that to say, this buck came in last year and all, it was about the age and it was about what a beast he was. And I didn't give a crap what he scored and he actually scored great for a four by four, but I absolutely love that deer. I mean, he had a 26 inch neck, Jeez, you know, <laughs> he's just a freaking monster mountain buck, which I was, when I killed him and got him to the taxidermist and they told me, I said, Troy, that freaking deer you killed is a monster just a body big buck that's what got to me when he came in i was looking at him and I was like damn that is a toe <laughs> so did i care did i care one bit on him what he scored no he was a beast and he ended up scoring really well for a four by four but it had no impact on me i knew he had the age right. i could see it in his i could see it in his chest his brisket his face long nose i knew he was a horse yeah. um on the other hand on the other hand, I'm always looking for a giant. Always. Right. I just, I, that's what gets me excited is, I, you know, there's, there's a lot of giants in other States. There's not a lot of giants in the mountains. There's yeah. a few. And for me, I like chasing that rarity, that really hard to kill combination of old hermit survivor. Plus his headgear is, is pretty amazing. You know, that, that, right. that gets me fired up. Um, I, and I like how our big mountain bucks in this country actually, I don't know if you've ever looked at any bucks I've killed, but carry good mass. Oh yeah. Um, a lot of my bucks, you know, I'm hunting bucks that have the same strain of genetics as the Canadian bucks right above me. Right. You know, yeah. I've, I've killed, I've hunted some bucks that have been on both sides of the border. Wow. You know? Yeah. So, so I love that big, heavy chocolate, dark rack, just, Big bodies too. Our, our white tails yeah. out here in the mountains, the ones that make it, the genetics have been passed on over the century or the decades, at least centuries probably, right. that have allowed the bigger bodies make it. The, the the DNA that's big and strong and can handle the harsh winters, you know, three, four, five, six, seven feet of snow in the high country, they got to escape from and they have to migrate and then they got to move back up in elevation. Those genetics are out there. We just don't have big numbers. You know, it's yeah. a, some of my bucks will travel 10 miles in a day during the rut just to check on a few doe family groups. And that's, that's proven by trail camera pictures that buddies and I have shared over the years, 10 miles apart. We'll get a buck in 24 hours, go 10 miles, Jeez. you know, yeah. which I'm, is just incredible. And I, I wouldn't know that if I hadn't shared some trail camera pictures with some buddies of mine that are really good whitetail hunters too, but we stay away from each other enough to where we're not, on top of each other, but we're willing to share, Hey, this buck's still alive type right. of thing. Yeah. Um, but no, all that to say, 
you know, I, I, I like, I like big deer. I do. I mean, what else? Do you say? I, I like, I like those big monster whitetails that are 250, 275 on the hoof. Yeah. And packing a cage with them too. There's just nothing like them. Yeah. There's nothing like them to me. I mean, yeah. it's just, it's just a different level of whitetails when you run into something that tremendous out here in these mountains. Yeah, man. It's, you know, and again, I'm not hunting the same type of mountains that you're hunting, but for the mountains that I do get to hunt, you know, in, in, in the, in the bigger pieces of timber, it's when you see that, that big mountain buck and you get, you know, a trail camera image of him and just know that he's alive. And you're like, I don't know. It just fires you up, you know, cause it's just, yeah. they're, <clears throat> they're the hardiest of the hardiest, you know, in their, in their yep. territory. Like they're the, you know, the king of the jungle, the, if you will, you know, and they're, just, they're a hell of a survivor is what they are. They, yeah. they blow they, I have so much respect for them. Um, you just, know, they beat the, me more, they beat, they beat me more than I beat them. They yeah, do. for sure. And it's just the, the opportunity to battle wits with them is just the part that I just, I mean, I just dig it, <laughs> you know, and, and like, oh. and sometimes, you know, I talk about this too. It's, you know, at least where I'm at in my, in my journey of hunting, you know, you know, mature mountain deer is that if I can battle wits and get within range, I maybe not even, I maybe don't even get my bow pulled back, but I, but I beat him, you know, and I just didn't get the shot opportunity. Like I look at, I'm like, okay, I won that round. I didn't get, I didn't win the war, <laughs> but I won the battle. You know, it's like I was there, he was there where, I, where he was supposed to be. He did everything he was supposed to do. I just didn't get the shot opportunity because there was a piece of brush or whatever it was, you know, and I leave going, all right, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm chipping away. I'm chopping wood, you know, and that's just the cool part is like doing just the, the chess match with them. But, you know, I wanted to ask you, you know, when you find a, a buck and you kind of, well, I guess two part question, it sounds to me like you and correct me if I'm wrong. And I've never heard you say this. I'm just kind of guessing like you probably prefer to hunt these deer, you know, sometime in like October before they really get moving in the rut because they travel such long distances and probably becomes a little bit more of a, a challenge and, you know, becomes more difficult when that, when that happens. So that's the first part. Is, is that true? And then when you find a hidey hole that a buck is living in, will he, will he stay there consistently because of just like the, the ruggedness and like the, the predation that he's going to face and stuff like that. Like if he finds like a, a, a sanctuary that he's going to basically be, you can almost bank on him being there. Okay. Uh, first part, I, I like all phases. Um, okay. one thing I take great pride in is I've killed a lot of bucks very evenly throughout every month. Hmm. And that's something that's been very important to me. Um, I don't know. There's 40 some whitetail bucks downstairs. Um, and 35 or of them are worth a bow and arrow or more. Um, I'd have to go count, but even growing up, my, my, I always wanted to be really good at this every month of the season. Not just, I'm not a rut hunter. I'm not an early season guy special. I, I just want to be really damn good at it no matter what month. And if you go and you know, I have guys out here from my boot camp. And I'll go downstairs, and when I do the math and I lay them all out, it's pretty even. Hmm. You know, I've got some great August 30th to middle September bucks. I've got some great early October, middle October bucks. I've got some great early November bucks. I've got some tremendous late November bucks and some awesome December bucks. Hmm. And that's something that I've always taken pride in is I'm re- I. I like the challenge 
of of how the game changes and being on top of that and being ahead of it versus behind that, you know, being behind the eight ball on that. Um, so I'm always trying to be a step ahead of every big deer I'm trying to kill because the truth is I'm probably going to get one daylight opportunity to kill him and I got to make it happen. And I really tried it. It's very important to me when that opportunity comes to get it done. So, uh, as far as having one specific time that really helps me kill a specific buck. Yeah. The rut can be, the rut can be a pain in the ass when it mm-hmm. comes to that. Yeah. But if you really have your does documented and you have the dates of when the buck you're trying to kill is on a certain doe group, he'll almost always be there the next year in that same drainage. Yeah. So, so I'll jump around on doe groups during the rut based on a buck I'm trying to kill based on info yeah. I have on him for several years and info I had on him when he was three and four, when he was a great deer, but I didn't want to kill him. I just was, I just stacking info, right. stacking info. on. Him. Yeah. yeah Cause the, those doe that, groups will, their ester states will like those doe funds have this, they share the same ester states. They pass them onto their doe fawns. And so that just, that makes they, sense. They, they, they those mature does especially will be very close every year to their same date. Mm-hmm. You know, and gr- growing up, I learned to date my does young. I started dating does young, meaning I'd write down the dates. I'd see a big mature buck on them. And if that same doe stayed alive the next year, I could almost guarantee within a two or three day window of that same date, she'd be an estrus the next year. And I saw, I've seen that a lot. I've watched that a lot. I've got a white tail buck right now. Literally, when we're talking, I was looking at a at a SD card of him, um, a buck I really want to kill this year. For three years in a row now, he has been on the same doe family group hmm. within a five day window in the mountains every year. Same same doe family group, and that old doe is still alive. I need her to stay alive. You know, <laughs> right. I need her to be there this year and not get killed by a lion or a wolf. But what's incredible about this buck, and I think your listeners will appreciate this, I get him six miles away two weeks later every year. Wow. At a different doe family group in a different drainage. So the whole point of that rut hunting him is I'm going to hunt one drainage early November for him. And then later in November, about Thanksgiving, he moves over a drainage and he services a bunch of does and that next drainage over. So my point is, that's an incredible, just exciting game to play too. When you're playing a game like that. Yeah. And, and my, you know, my son's killed a couple big ones. Literally we killed them on community scrapes that those live on. And we knew when his bucks, my son's two biggest mountain whitetails. He's got 150 some class and a 160 class 65. And you know, he's 18 years old in college now, but he's mm-hmm. killed a couple monsters with me, but both of his bucks, we had those bucks dialed timing wise every year where they would be in what community scrape they would be checking for four or five day window. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Man. And, it, and it wasn't their It wasn't their hideout home range spot that we were trying to kill him, kill them in an early season. I mean, it was miles away during the rut. So I like it all. Uh, right. If you ha- if I had to pick, and this might be helpful to you to answer your question. If you said, Troy, you get one month to kill the best buck of your life and I'm only you only get one month to honey man what month would you pick this might surprise you but if he can make it 
I really like, really like early December, the wow. first six, seven days of December. Why is that? That's because out here, that's the tail end of our rut. Hmm. And that's when the biggest bucks, a lot of guys, a lot of whitetail hunters give up by then or have tagged out and they're done. Yeah. And, and the snow is a pain in the ass and it's deep and you're chaining up. But these big bucks are still going to take care of their doe family groups into about the 9th or 10th of December every year. Hmm. So what happens is, is the human pressure subsides a little bit. These old bucks, and I've watched them do it year after year, that, that, that first, second week of December, they start to, well, they're worn out, they're tired, they, 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 uh, they're beat up. Mm-hmm. And mentally, they're wore out. Uh, in my opinion, they're a little more susceptible to a mistake. It's a little easier to get in on them when there's not as many rigs in the mountains driving around, making noise, and, yeah. you know, letting them know here comes the hunting army. Uh, yeah, there's just, I feel like it's a combination of factors. They're hungry, they're mm-hmm. tired. They're wore out. I believe they make more mistakes, but they'll still check those scrapes and they'll still make sure every last doe is covered. Hmm. And a lot of times my biggest, most hermit-like, very nocturnal bucks that choose not to do anything till nighttime, literally won't do anything till nighttime. They'll play it that safe. Um, They'll just lay in their bed. They'll just stay put. And I've, trust me, I, I'll be set up close to them to where they just time it by the dark. As soon as it's half hour after dark, they'll go rut all night and then they'll beat feet back. Cause I'll pick them up on two or three community scrapes mm-hmm. that I have set up in a drainage three and four miles. They'll do a, they'll do a big round through the night, go do their thing. And if they get on a doe, they stay, but if they don't, they'll get back to their bed and I'll pick them up ascending to their bed, right. You know, four o'clock in the morning or five, and they'll get settled in for the day and they'll just hold tight. Well, what happens in that, late season, the tail end of the rut, last few does, I'll see them be throw caution to the wind just a little bit more to move in daylight. And that's all I'm looking for is that daylight movement, you know? Yeah. Um, are, are they more skittish? Sometimes, yeah, but they're wore out too. Yeah. And I really feel like they, they, they're so wore out that a lot of times they'll make that mistake. And I've caught some dandies early December. Hmm. I mean, some old guys. My oldest bucks I've ever killed have all been late November, early December, or September 1st, right around the 1st. So it's a little give or take. Right. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And then what was the second part of your question? <laughs> the second part was you started kind of you started kind of getting there um, a little bit, but when you find a buck's hidey hole, like his bedroom or whatever, um, do you find that they are pretty consistent with that? particular bed or that particular bedroom, if you will, if not, a, if not a specific bed that, you know, once they find something that they like, that's going to give them that security cover that they want to stay away from predation and so forth, you know, and they got the wind at their advantage. Are they pretty consistent in that hidey hole? Or do you find that, you know, cause I know like for me, for example, and I, these mountains aren't nearly as big, so it's probably different, but you know, they might have a bedroom. It might be a couple acres or whatever the case might be, but they might kind of, you know, wind shift around like the, the ridge or in different kind of areas based on what the wind is going to do, you know, cause it, they just don't have enough security in that one place. And there's like wind based bedding or whatever the case is. But do you find like where you're at, because it's, 
you know, when they find like a spot that works for them, are they less inclined to leave it? I guess is what I'm asking. First off, all of my, all of my old deer have a, have a pattern or the older bucks, they have a, they have that summer bedding based on feed, heat, trying to avoid heat, get water. I mean, we, out here in the West, we burn up with forest fires. We have drought. I mean, it's a pain in the ass in, in August, September. Once we get the rains and every, and all the hunters start hunting and the elk hunters are in the woods and the whitetail hunters are in the woods right now, my bucks all relocate to their, a better preferred, uh, security area to where they're not getting bothered as much by humans. Mm-hmm. And then October rolls around and the rut starts coming. And at the end of October, they really start, really start picking up their movement and range every day of how far they'll move and start checking, uh, on early does and all that then their beds completely can change. Hmm. Um, will they travel all the way back uh, in October to a really good bedding security area? Yeah. And a lot of my areas are 70, 80, 100, 200 acre area where they want to bed on one side of the ridge one day they can, or bed on the other side, or they can move around, you know, and one, one reason they do that. And I believe they do that is they don't want to just sit in one bed every day. That just, that doesn't work with predators. Mm-hmm. You're, you're a sitting duck if you just sit in one spot every day. But what they'll have out here is a bedding zone that they like Got it. for a specific time of the year, uh, d- dependent upon heat, food, water, and, of course, the rut coming. Yeah. Uh, once the rut hits, what's the, once the rut hits, what my bucks do is they camp out in different spots based on doe family groups that they want to service. They'll camp out and if I get a buck that's a real, I call him a homebody, he'll pretty much just service the does in his area and he'll come back to a pretty, you know, a real sound bedding zone. But I also get those bucks that are big roamers mm-hmm. and they'll literally go camp out in different areas to service does. And then once that slows way down early December, then he'll probably come back to his most preferred safe zone, if you will. Right. So, some of it depends on a buck's personality, uh, his demeanor, and then obviously what kind of pressure he gets in a specific area that year. Um, I had a buck a couple years ago that loved his bedding zone so much that he wouldn't hardly leave it. Hmm. And I, I had him on camera till there was two feet of snow before he'd leave. He was the last deer to leave the mountain in January, <laughs> but he wouldn't hardly leave it just because he was so safe there. Wow. And I tried to kill him in there and I actually screwed that up. I should have killed that deer and I screwed it up on the last day of the season when he thought it was all over. He came right down through my scrape and walked right through it thinking there was nobody in the woods, but me and him. And I tried to outsmart him and catch him at a different spot that he had been frequenting that week, a little bit in the daylight. And he either had me totally patterned and I didn't know it, or I flat out screwed it up and should have stuck with my best spot. If right. that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. But he was one of those deer that really held tight to that spot from August till December. Other bucks don't. It, it, some of them do. Some of them don't. I don't know if that answers your question very well, but it is part in part their demeanor and what kind of uh, if they're real nomadic or if they like staying home. Yeah. Yeah. No, that make that 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 makes sense. You know, and that's, you know. I would say it's probably pretty consistent with some of the, the bigger woods pieces, you know, or mountain areas that I've, that I've hunted, you know, where it's like, you'll, you'll definitely get those home, home bodies that want to kind of stick around. Um, and then there's ones where it, it, 
you see him in August, you know, and maybe early September, and then you know you don't see him again until December on camera, like in that in the in a similar location. You might get him, you know, ten miles away or three miles away or however far they end up traveling when they transition or whatever the case is. But you know, yeah. they're not spending a whole, any time really, except. I have seen the ones that leave that will make one kind of sachet through um, like like the second week of November where they almost like, all right, I've kind of checked out all my does like in my fall range. I'm going to come back to my old haunt of the summer and check those does yep. real quick. You know, so I've seen that. And it's funny because like I've heard uh, I think it was Don Higgins talk a little bit about that. I think he calls it like coming home or whatever, where like those big mature deer, it's like once they kind of finish their breeding cycles in their fall range, they'll make one kind of loop. And it's usually like the second week in November back through like their, their summer range and just kind of make a run through and see if they can root out any, any, you know, any does to breed. Yeah. And they, those old bucks know where every doe family group is for miles. Yeah, exactly. Well, they got that many years on them and we're talking, you know, when you, when you're asking me these questions, based everything on a five-year-old deer and older. Yeah. Yeah. My three and four year old bucks are like teenage boys. <laughs> so there you go. Right. Yeah. They'll run all over Hill's half acre to try to get lucky. Right. And a lot of times, and a lot of times, as soon as it gets serious with the doe, they get bumped and they got to move on because the big dog rolls in and takes care of business. Right. And I right. see that a lot. I see that a lot on my cameras yeah. and I see that a lot at my stands. And, uh, you know, no, late November is really good here. That's our, that's our heavy breeding time is late okay. November. Okay. Um, and that's when I'll catch a hermit buck that's very nocturnal in his daily movements in the daylight because he's, you know, it's late. It's again, I, I run into definitely run into some help when it, when the conditions get rugged and nasty, when it comes to snow and hard to get to places that does help. Right. Yeah. So I want to transition now, man. You know, you've mentioned primary scrapes, you know, or community scrapes a couple times, and you know, we've we've referenced mock scrapes in your setup. So I want to I want to start with just regular scrapes and how you hunt them and how you use them, and then I want to transition after that into talking about your mock scrape kind of approach because I know you have a very specific approach to how you like to use them and how you like to set them up. So let's start with just kind of community scrapes in general. You know, how are you using these for either you know, pinpointing an area or understanding that, that, you know, one, it is a, a primary scrape or a community scrape and how are you using it as part of your hunting strategy? Okay. First, I think to be fair to the listeners, because there's so much verbiage out there yeah. in the world about scrapes that what one guy might think is a community or a primary isn't even close to the same or they're exactly the same. So for me, and I've been a community guy for Forever. I mean, before I even think people said community scrapes, right? I was talking about, and what I mean is the entire drainage, the big areas, my areas are huge. I might have a drainage that runs 15 miles long, but that entire drainage will have some specific sites, scrapes in it that every deer in that drainage that travels that drainage, they'll know where that scrape is. So what I'm, what I'm targeting is a social hub scrape that every deer in the local drainage area has either, you know, all the does have taught their fawns about, you know, where it's at. And they won't always live right next to it, but they'll know where it's at. Mm -hmm. And every buck in the local drainage in that area 
will know exactly where it's at. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that my deer densities are lower mm-hmm. and deer travel. It doesn't, it doesn't bother a mountain deer to travel two or three miles is nothing. That's right. just a hop, skip and a jump for them. So a community scrape for me is where when I put a camera on it or if I find one, I'll literally get every deer in that drainage within a two weeks period of time, at least checking it once or twice. And the deer that are bedded closer to it will often check it daily, especially the doe family groups. Mm-hmm. So that's my definition of a communal scrape versus just uh, a rut frenzied scrape or a scrape laid down on a logged road just because the testosterone's high. Right. It doesn't get checked regularly. And it, and it hasn't been there, you know, a community scrapes, has been established for decades a lot of times. Yeah, I always kind of and refer to them as like the barbershop of the of the of the of the town. <laughs> they are the hub. Yeah. yeah. They yeah. are the hub and every young deer has been taught by the older deer where they're at. Yeah. And is are and there the character I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was going to say, are there characteristics that that you that you specifically seek out that define that? You know, like Oh, multiple, sure. multiple licking branches, yeah. you know, location. Yeah. And, and I, yep. I've talked about that a lot. Um, when I walk up on one, a lot of times I can get on a map, go into an area and locate it. If I spend enough time boots on the ground, I'll find it. Um, but what I'll run into is multiple licking branches, years and years of abuse to the licking branches. I mean, and you can just, and that's something that 99% of the hunters walk right by and don't even know it was there. Yep. But I am just, my eyes are always, you know, eye level licking branches. I'm a, you know, I can see a licking branch 40 yards away, 50 <laughs> yards away in the woods. And nice. it's just because it's such a gold mine to me and it always has been. Yeah. And it's, it, it, you'll see all the sign. Most of the time at these community scrapes, you'll have terrain that has driven the traffic there, you know, without the animals even knowing it. And the wind is usually always good at one of these spots. And it's the security cover is always good. I mean, I never find these things out in the open where a rifle hunter could pick deer off at. You just, it's always in good cover, terrain-based driven. You know, a lot of animals are cruising through there anyway, so why not have one there? You know, it's an easy communication post that's in good cover. And then as far as the licking branches, there'll be multiple, sometimes there'll be three or four or five giant scrapes in a cluster. Mm-hmm. And I'll, when I say giant car hood size, yeah, I've got a couple of spots like that are just blow your mind <laughs> and they produce deer year after year after year, because every deer in the damn drainage knows where it's at and they know they need to go check it, especially during the rut. Yeah. So all that to say, yeah, I'm looking for that, that detailed licking branch. It's been, that shows all the decades of use. Uh, the dirt below it will show depth in the scrape where it's been pod and worked for so many years that there's actually some depth to it mm-hmm. instead of just on top of the flat ground. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll, you know, they'll be wore out pretty good. And I'm not saying they're dug out deep, but a lot of times they'll be an inch or two deeper than the, all the ground around it. Yeah, you can just uh, almost see like it's a little like satellite dish, like you know, concaveness yeah, to yeah. it. You know what I mean? There's yeah. Some, yeah, there's some concave to it. Um, you know, when I find them, I'll get right down on my, I'll get down in a push-up position and smell them. And even in the spring, there's there's residual urine in the ground and scent. Cause 
urine crystallizes. Yeah. And then the licking branches will just be beat to heck. And lots of vertical, vertical hanging licking branches. They've been pulled on and chewed on and twisted and worked for so many years that a lot of them are hanging straight vertical to the ground. And, you know, there's, I've got, a, I've got one spot right now that I found a uh, place where Ty killed the second best buck ever. Um, that community scrape might be the prettiest site that I've ever walked up on in my life when it comes mm-hmm. to a scrape. And, you know, I found it in the spring shed hunting and I knew I needed to check that ridge. And I knew that the deer were using that security cover on that ridge to move, to move laterally be based on what was around it and based on the hunting pressure around it. And sure enough, the scrapes were right where they were supposed to be. And there's like six of them there and they're all within a 20 yard cluster. And I run video. Anybody's ever looked at my YouTube. I don't, I don't ever post anything that I'm trying to hunt right now, but I'll post all the past stuff. Yeah. And that, that YouTube channel of mine has that scrape cluster on it. And it's just unbelievable. The traffic that spot gets when the deer aren't migrated away from April to December, that communal scraping area, it just gets pounded from April to December. Hmm. The licking branches get worked all the way through all those months. Yeah. Do you find, um, that and maybe not for all of them, like one thing that I've noticed, at least for me in some of the areas that I hunt, like a lot of times I'll come across a scrape when I'm scouting and I'll look at it and go, all right, everything looks right. As far as like plenty of travel, it's close to close to cover. It's close to what I feel is bedding or I've verified that I've found beds and it's, and it's close to that. And everything feels right for a, you know, a community scrape and licking branches, the whole nine. One of the things that I've found early, at least if it's a new spot to me, that say like, for example, that has very, that'll a lot of times just kind of help verify it is I'll start to get activity on it like during the summer, you know, or like it'll start, like you mentioned, like April and it just kind of continues where it's like, it might peter out a little bit in June or July or something like that, but there's always deer activity on it, even when they're not pawing the ground, that they're still communicating with it. When I find those, that's when I'm like, all right, I found like a hub, like they're using it year round. This is, this is the spot. Yeah. You want to look for two things and you nailed one of them. You should have activity daily or every other day minimum. Mm-hmm. But number two, I don't even get excited if it's not daylight. Daylight in August or daylight in April all the way through. Got to yeah. have some daylight activity, which tells me that the whitetails are really comfortable with daylighting there. And when you start getting the oldest whitetail buck in that local area, hitting it in the daylight in the summer and into the fall mm-hmm. and checking it in the daylight, then you're in a, you're in a gold mine spot. And those, those aren't always easy to find because once the hunting pressure hits, yeah. Some of those great communal scrapes go to nighttime only visits. Yeah. They'll yeah. still communicate there. They'll still let every deer in the woods know they're around, but it's all nighttime. Yeah. So I'm really targeting daylight specific areas that deer feel so comfortable and oh and they feel unhunted there that they'll daylight it. Yeah. A question for you. And that's where I place my mocks. That's where I place my mocks. Yeah. And I want to jump into that here in a second. I wanted to ask you a question and this is kind of a personal question for my own edification, but you know, I have an area that I know is a, you know, a community scrape. I have deer hit it all year round, all through the summer daylight. Um, you know, it'll have like right now, you know, it's I actually have a cell camera on it because I watch it. It's a kind of hard to access area. And so I don't mess with it until I know that the time's right. You know, it's like I leave it alone until I know that I have an opportunity to try to kill. Um, 
Now I'll get right now. I'm getting act, you know, daily activity on it in the morning, you know, in daylight, some subordinate bucks, some like younger bucks. I'll see like the, like what I will kind of assume to be bigger, more mature deer. Usually they'll hit it a couple times in the summer as they're kind of filling out and then they'll kind of disappear. And then it'll, they'll, they'll, they'll show back up right around like October 15th, 16th or like, you know, between the like 16th and like 21st, like that's whenever I'll finally like get like the mature bucks, like the big boys will start showing up in daylight around that time frame. at least for the first time they'll show themselves. Do you see anything similar to that or would, how would you classify this scrape I'm kind of describing to you? Like, do you think it's a high priority place or do you think it might be just, you know, the fact that I live in Pennsylvania with a ton of hunters and a lot of hunting pressure that it's, yeah, it's a community scrape, but they're probably a little bit more um, cautious about how they approach it. I mean, they're approaching it in daylight, so that's good, but they might be kind of checking it, scent checking it from afar and then kind of diving in when they know the timing's getting to be about right. Yeah, I'd say a couple things come to mind. I get, when I get spots like that, that, and I know you guys get a ton of pressure, but what what I would tell you if I was like out there with you and say, do you want to hunt this or not? I think you're too far away from any of your big mature bucks at that spot. Hmm. But they're going to come to you in the rut because you have the goods there. Yeah. And that's what you're seeing. They're starting to check those doe family groups at that scrape on purpose in mid-october that's when they're starting to show up Mm -hmm. so to me that scrape that you're on right there is is a good solid rut hunting scrape over does Mm -hmm. if that's all you got what i do in my game is i I take my game to the big buck that's by himself i take it at him right so what i do is i take that concept of this community scrape and I figure out, based on my scouting intel, my cameras, everything, where he's most likely bedded in his zone, uh, specific to the month, where he's hiding out. And I move right in to his wind and his face, and I lay one down on him, and I basically build a trap to get him to elicit daylight movement right out of his bed. Right. So, really, truthfully, I'm a white-tail, big-buck bed hunter almost year round minus those couple weeks where I would hunt a scrape like you're hunting mm-hmm. because I know he'll come in there in the daylight too. Now, yeah. if I've had big white tails, old mature bucks that will only hit those great doe spots, like I referenced earlier, he'll wait till night just to stay alive and be careful. Right. So I move at him and I take the community scrape. Uh, I take that concept and I put it right in his face yeah. and he can't deny the scent. And I'll, I put multiple deer profiles in it. Usually what happens with me and my big deer, when I make a move on him to kill him because I'm not getting him daylight enough and I move at him, he will come into that build within a day or two because I got, I'm using the wind and the thermals to push it right to his face on yeah. purpose. I've got all that, you know, that stuff's broken down and deciphered. I know that sense getting to his face. So all that to say, he'll roll in and check it out. And I've got oodles of video, just numerous videos of these bigger, older age class bucks, five, six, seven, eight year old bucks. First time ever checking it within a day or two of me. Sometimes it's the next day. Sometimes hmm. it's 24 hours. Yeah. But he'll check it and he'll literally walk it, walk circles around it, just 
bobbing his head, scent checking it all, and he'll act like, and I know guys have heard me say this on podcasts before, but it's incredible to watch. He'll literally act like, how in the hell did I miss this? Hmm. What's going on here? How am I missing this? And what's nice about those is immediately the younger bucks in the area, even from further away, and my does in the area, even if they're down elevation, they'll come up and immediately overtake it for me. So then it just puts him into a, then he's, then he starts smelling deer that he already knows, plus these new deer that he doesn't know yet, but he's trying to figure out what's going on here and how did I miss this. He gets more intrigued by it and he'll scent check it in the daylight more frequently. And that's what I, that's the game I play on them old bucks when they're really hard to get to nice. move in the daylight. Yeah. So th- that's a perfect kind of transition into, cause now the next thing is, is like, you know, I know you're kind of all up in their business and you're, and you're almost like you were saying earlier, you're trapping whitetails, but you're not using, <laughs> not using a trap. Right. Um, yeah. how, how are you making this mock scrape now? You know, cause now it's like, we, I get it now. It's like, you're, if you've got something that's close by, it's like, you want to push it into his bedroom and just kind of rile him up, you know? How are you actually going about physically making the mock scrape? What is your process or approach for that? Like that's, I guess let's start at the beginning and just say like, you know, when do you start making mock scrapes? Like, is that something you do in the fall? Is it the summer? Like, when do you actually start placing them? So it all depends on the scenario. I I make, I make several in the spring and summer based on what I come across scouting. And I read that sign and there's times in the, in uh, February and March, I'll place one because I know I need one there. And I let it go to, I let it start working for me right then. And then there's also times where I'll put one in a big buck space that I'm not getting daylight enough at a different location in October, November. I don't care what month it is. Mm -hmm. Does not matter to me. Um, If there needs to be a mock scrape there for potential kill of a big mountain whitetail that I know is in the area, could be based on a big shed find. It could be based on years of knowledge of this deer and I'm not getting on him close enough. I'll put it down any month of the year hmm. because the, the thing or the, um, the concept is a lot different than I think a lot of hunters hunt by a communal scrape works year round for decades. So I mimic that. I throw that at these big whitetails and they literally, like I said before, are perplexed at why they didn't come across that in their territory before. So it doesn't matter to me what time of the year. I've never, you know, I've heard guys say, well, is it too, I get this all the time. Troy, is it too late for me to go make these scrapes? Hell no. (laughs) Go, go be aggressive and get in the game with the deer and quit hoping that he's going to show up in the daylight when he's never daylight for you or he's once a week. You know, I, I am a very aggressive hunter that way. Because I don't want to waste my sits. I only have so many times I can go hunt a buck. Yeah. Um, in five years when I'm retired and can hunt every day of the year, then, you know, I don't know. I'll probably always be aggressive because it works. Right. But I also am very detailed. You ask, you know, how I build these and when and why. It's all based on every different given scenario that I'm facing. Um, I'm ready. I'm flexible for any scenario that comes at me. So I'm always ready. I always have my kit. I'm always ready to roll with it. And it's simple biology. If you really break it down, I'm placing new deer in a 
old mature bucks knows that he doesn't know, but they're there. The scent doesn't spook him. He, they always come to it. What's incredible about the synthetics that I use, the buck fever synthetics, I've never once ever watched a whitetail buck of mine or doe spook from my scrapes. Ever. Mm. Never seen it. Never. But I'm also extremely detailed. Uh, I cut no corners. Um, I've taken younger guys out in the woods with me and showed them some stuff, and I swear to God they're bored because I'm so detailed. It drives them nuts. <laughs> That's you funny. know, literally, yeah. I'm, I'm not joking. My son gets it. My son gets it because he's grown up doing it. So when he builds one, he, he gets it because he's seen it work. And the son is like, yeah, he, like he gets on my ass if I if I cut any type of corner. Dad, <laughs> don't, you dare touch that. Right. Dad, don't let your face touch that Lincoln Branch, you know. Watch right. it, Dad. That Lincoln. Anyway, so, and this is what gets me excited about hunting whitetails this way is I can apply this. I can apply this tactic at them year round. And what's even cooler about it, what's even amazing, more amazing about it is I get whitetails to come to me and grow up on my scrapes and get so comfortable with them that when they reach their fifth and sixth birthday, they've actually kind of got comfortable there. Hmm in the daylight and they're willing to check in the daylight. And I feel like I have a little bit of an advantage versus them not being comfortable there. Uh, again, sometimes I have to throw one at a new buck in the middle of the season. Right. And I'm fine with that too. Uh, if it's anywhere near the rut, they're on it. They are checking it, man. They want to know. And, and I'm not putting one deer scent in there. I'm right. putting multiple deer forehead profiles and urine profiles multiple yeah so let's let's transition to that to actually how you're making them like the details about how like you're actually pulling these things together like what you know you know let's talk about you know are the the type of licking branch you want to use like how how big are you making them you know how close yeah. in proximity are they to an existing community scrape like all that stuff right so some of the most important details are you know i'm hunting Midwest, I'm hunting three states up here in the north. I've hunted in Alberta. The first thing I do anywhere I go, and especially in my own home ground up here, which is three different states, every drainage, I pay extreme close attention to detail of what the deer prefer. When it comes to licking branch species and the visual that I build in a specific drainage, guess where I got that information from, for my scouting. From what the deer have already showed me at other community scrapes in the same drainage. Yeah. I, I picked up right. I mean, it, it's so important to pick up on all those little details of what the deer like. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll put them on the, there's only like, in most drainages, there's one or two species that I will use based on what the deer have showed me in those given drainages of what to use for licking branch. And I have no problem harvesting the licking branch and moving it and strapping it to a pine tree. It doesn't matter. I make sure they have the licking branch that they like. Mm -hmm. um, I'm obviously looking for a nice dirt bed area where there's some actual possibility to, you know, to make the dirt, you know, make a nice bed of dirt that can hold scent. You know, I'd stay out of the rocks and stay out of the sand as much as I can. And, you know, I really pay attention to all those little things. But what's key is, is you got to place that scrape where that buck is huntable and killable based on where you put that scrape. 
-hmm. You're wasting your time if you go put a scrape in a perfect location to get him to check it. But if you can't hunt that spot and if you can't access it and get out of there, you just ruined that whole, in my opinion, that whole setup because that buck will be on to you instantly. If you don't, if you don't set it up based on how the wind is going to work for him every day to get to it, you've just, you're not even in the game. Right. So then when I get to the actual details, um, yeah, I mimic what I see for community scrapes in those local areas. Um, uh, the species, the, the way that they're beat up, the way that they, the vertical licking branches hang, and it's based on finding them. You know, I, I, I find them in those areas, and then I mimic that. And I make it look extremely authentic to them. It looks just like the one they know down the ridge, you know, 800 yards, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, I copy all of that, but the entire time I'm basing the positioning of that scrape on wind and thermals. I'm letting the wind and thermal work for me 24-7 every day of the week or every year of the week that a buck could be using a bedding zone where most of that wind and thermal is sending that scent daily. It's just incredible to see, too, how quick deer jump on those. I mean, they're on them instantly. I mean, I had a guy from Michigan this year, a really cool guy I did a podcast with. Um, I think it was Steve Crawford. I hope I got that name right. Really good guy. Anyway, I sent him my kit. He put it out. He texted me back. He said, I can't believe this, Troy. This was summer. Because I got 17 bucks on this in 24 Jeez. hours. I couldn't, yeah. I mean, I told him, I said, hey, that's that's a number. Yeah. He goes, yeah. He goes, I, he goes, I can't believe it. He goes, I, he goes, I positioned it with great cover. I knew there was bucks bedding in there. He goes, I can't believe it, Troy. There's 17 bucks on this in 24 hours. Now, are you going to get 17 bucks everywhere? Heck no. I'll right. never get 17 bucks on one in 24 hours. <laughs> I, I, don't have the, I don't have the deer numbers to do that. Right. But for me, it's all about getting the right buck that you're targeting to elicit his response in the daylight. That's the key. And be able to hunt it. Right. Yeah. Uh, as far as the dirt work goes and this actual laying it all out, um, I always spray my hands with that vanishing hunter and I like to wear latex gloves if it's not too hot out. If my hands are going to sweat, I don't, I just spray, spray my hands down. Um, the dirt, I always dig up with a long stick on purpose from the woods and pack it away and throw it away. Just simple things like that. Mm-hmm. I don't want to pack tools miles in, so I don't do any of that. Uh, I really make the dirt bed. Uh, look like an authentic communal scrape that these deer have seen for years and they're used to. Um, I really load them up heavy with scent initially. I don't care what month it is because I want to get that scent. I want to get those scent molecules and that scent cone out into the thermals and the wind for a long distance. You know, I want it to travel a mile at least. Right. You know, and when I do my licking branch forehead gland initially on the first build, I always spray it, not only on the licking branches, but I go up an elevation above the licking branches on whatever uh, tree I'm using or whatever. And I don't care what, if it's, even if I, even if I transplanted the licking branch, say onto a black pine tree, Mm -hmm. I still go way up into the needles above when I initially build it because I want the wind and the thermals to push that scent of the forehead gland out through the woods a long ways. So I really load it up initially. The deer come in, they take it over, they start marking it with their natural scent. The only time I 
market again with my sense is when I'm there to hunt it or check a card, and that's it. That way I'm not intruding on them. You know, you were talking about having a cell camera. Mm-hmm. That's great. I yeah. love having running a cell camera. I just don't get service in very many of my spots. But yeah. where I do, I love that whole cell camera idea because I'm not intruding on them. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the, a lot of my, you know, what I, you know, a lot of the community scrapes that I find, I will, I typically, if I have service, I'll usually always run cell cameras on them for that reason, where I don't show up until I know the deer that I want to potentially kill is starting to show himself, you know, and it might be, yeah. And it it might be that he's, yeah. And it might be that he's shown up on the cusp of of daylight where it's like, he's 15 minutes or 20 minutes out or 30 minutes out. Even it's like, and I'll just kind of watch. Yep. And as I know he's getting closer, it's like, I kind of figure I'm like, all right, well, it's going to be about three days and he's going to be about prime to show up in daylight, you know? And so I kind of play yep. it, play it like that. It also, no, that's, that's wise. yeah, it's also bit me in the rear end because that primary scrape or community scrape I was telling you about, you know, the, the one I was trying to kill, he showed up three different times in daylight last year, all three times I was working, watching my cell camera go off, showing me he was at there uh, in daylight three different times at like between seven thirty and nine thirty. <laughs> yeah, if he's showing up that late in the morning, he's pretty comfortable there. Yeah, 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 for sure. So you you mentioned you'll put a couple of different deer profiles in this scrape. Like, what are you using? All the same kind of synthetic uh, urine, or are you using different types? Like, how are you getting so many different profiles to put in that scrape? Well, that's the magic question. Everybody wants all my info, so I'll share some of it. But yeah, <laughs> I've got my own. Yeah, I've got my own mix that I've worked years on. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of synthetics. Mm -hmm. Uh, Buck fever synthetics is my foundation. Okay. Uh, Buck fever synthetics I've been using for the, since the nineties. Okay. Since the 1990s and scrapes. Now back up with you, if you will, with me before I got, got in contact with those guys. Um, I was, um, digging up hot scrapes, digging the dirt out of them, putting them in Ziploc bags back in the eighties, freezing them and using them the next season or that season. Oh, wow. So I was transplanting eight or 10 deer to a new spot, 10, 15 miles away and just sprinkling that frozen urine and let it, it just, you know, warm up and boom. And I'd even use them a year later, every buck and doe I used to kill when I was younger, I would dissect the urine, the bladder out of the, or the urine out of the bladders. Mm, Okay. So I was saving all that stuff and freezing it instantly. So I was using true wild non-farm deer, no feces in the urine. And I was either getting the dirt, collecting the dirt, a little guard, little tiny hand garden shovel with my Ziplocs right. or any deer, anybody killed. I'd say, Hey, let me, uh, let me have that bladder. And they'd look at me like, what in the hell do you want that bladder? <laughs> and I'd take that bladder and take a syringe and, pull all the urine out of it nice and clean and freeze it. So that's what I was doing before synthetics till I got onto synthetics. And, you know, my background's kinesiology, biology. So for me, it all just made sense even years ago when I was young to use this urine to get deer to come to me. And then the whole synthetic thing came around and a lot of our states, including Idaho, wanted you to not use protein-based natural urines because of the disease factor involved. Right. So, I got in with buck fever and I was blown away at how well the buck fever urines worked on my deer Hmm. and it never rots. It never spoils. So I didn't have to freeze. I didn't have to deal with any of that. And I could just carry it in a bottle. It could be two or three years old. Still works great. Right. So I take the bulk. So I use the multiple profiles of buck fever. Plus 
I use a couple other ingredients that is my deal. Mm -hmm. I'm probably not going to share it all, but it's all synthetic. Yep. Yep. And I've just kind of built my, I built my own mix, if you will. Yeah. Okay. But but buck fever is my foundation of it. And their forehead gland is great. Um, You know, I've had guys say, well, it smells kind of like vanilla. Well, guess what? There's a reason why he wants, that's part of getting them to the tree. Right. Getting them to the licking branch. But there's other ingredients in there that are the deer scent. So anyway, um, yeah, that's kind of my base. I like multiple profiles of deer. To this day, I'll still collect a very hot peed-in scrape. And to this day, every now and then, man, if it's just rocking in there, I'll go collect a little bit of that dirt, throw it in a Ziploc, and transplant it to another scrape. And it's amazing what you see then. Man. Because you're adding multiple new deer scent identities to that scrape. Yeah. Man, that's a great idea. I've never thought I've never thought of doing that. And now I don't you... know a lot of guys that did. And I, I started doing it on my own when I was young, and it just made sense to me. No, when it's you really say not it... that hard. To, it's yeah. really not hard to freeze freeze piss that's in dirt. It's not hard to freeze. <laughs> right, a yeah. ziplock and a little shovel. That's all you need. I used I used to steal my mom's little garden shovel back in the eighties. Troy, where is my little? Sh-? And it's tiny. You know, it's a little tiny hand. Yeah. Little tiny garden shovel for planting flowers. You know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you probably don't need that much of the dirt either. I would, I'd imagine a little oh, bit no. like goes a long way. Gallon Ziploc bag, you hold more than you want to pack. Right. Yeah. Man, and just just I, just doing you know just doing that kind of thing to manipulate their natural biology to to check in the daylight more often because they're intrigued. Yeah. Where'd all these deer come from? Yeah. Is there anything else you do to the location aside from the scrape? Like that's, that's prep or anything like that, like beyond the, just the scrape or is it just the scrape and then you're, you're good to go. What do you mean? Ask that again. Is there anything else that you do? Cause I know some guys might make like a, you know, I don't know. They might make two or three in an area, right. To kind of like just, you know, have a, have a couple, you know, all like within like around like a tree or around a bush or whatever, or they might, they might make a mock rub that's nearby or a couple mock rubs or something like that. You know, is there anything like that that you're doing? Or is it just always about that one primary or that one mock scrape? Oh no, I mix it up big time. I almost always incorporate several mock rubs with okay. my forehead land on it. Almost always. Cause I want, I want that place to look like a, a traditional war zone. Yeah. I want bucks to walk in there and just go, Holy shit. There's rubs everywhere, which is visual. Yep. And then I have those rubs. I make mock rubs and I cover that with the forehead gland that's also up on the licking branch. Mm-hmm. And I, I want a big buck to roll in there and literally have his hair bristle up. And that's what they do on video. Right. They'll bristle. Right. They'll bristle. And they'll, they'll get the visual. They'll get the scent. They see it. I mean, it just, it just really impacts them. Because, you know, that's what they're used to seeing at those great communal areas where, the, where a lot goes down. They're yeah. used to seeing that. So I lay that out. And then a lot of times I'll, I'll just, you know, if it looks good for a cluster, I'll build two or three in a cluster. Mm-hmm. Or if I look feel like, you know what, I just need one big central one right here. I base it all on what you're seeing feel for that. Specific, yeah. What I'm seeing in the film for that specific spot. Yeah. And I've seen it all built by the deer different ways too. But it's, you know, there's places where clusters belong and it's usually because the right licking branch, there's multiple options for that licking branch right there Mm -hmm. in a close proximity, if that makes sense. Yeah. 
Where, where I'll build a single a lot of times is on steeper ground where okay. it's real steep, hard to find a good spot. But man, I'll tell you, there's some, there's some great whitetail hunting in the mountains on side hills that yeah. a lot of people overlook. Yeah. That's actually white tail deer, white. Yeah. White tail deer don't care if it's a little steep. They don't yeah. mind. Yeah. And it's funny. They'll check it if it's good security cover. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that. Cause like one of the places that, that I've been investigating and kind of exploring, that's where I ended up finding a bunch of really good deer was inside hill on the side hills you know it was like oh yeah oh, and, that was, yeah. and i was getting all daylight on those it was on the tops i was getting a lot of nighttime pictures and then yeah you know i moved or I put some cameras on some side hill areas where i figured they were probably making their way through and sure enough you know i'm getting them at like eight o'clock in the morning nine o'clock in the morning sometimes ten o'clock you know so it's like i kind of feel like i'm all up in their bedroom at that point like if i'm getting them that you know late in the morning and stuff like that so um, yeah, and something to keep in mind for your anybody that hunts any type of steep topography in any way, even like when I hunt southern Ohio and those bluffs in that country, it's the same way. Mm-hmm. Just remember, deer work vertical with thermals outside of the rut year-round. Mm-hmm. Bed to feed, bed to feed, up and down, up and down, up and down when there's some steepness. Mm-hmm. But as soon as the rut rolls around, what's the easiest way on a map, on a top, uh topographical map to cover ground for a buck it's not vertical it's mm-hmm. side hilling yeah it's running it's running above and below using the thermals of the time of the day to scent check everything and they'll run lateral lines yeah and that Bucks makes, will run lateral big time yeah and that makes sense because as you mentioned like that bed to feed it's like it's security and food so i'm just going to go nose in the nose in the wind nose in the wind back if yep. i can right and then whenever i'm checking when the rut rolls around it's like no, I'm trying to get as big of a scent profile as I can and cover as much ground by just by just traveling this one elevation line, and I can check, you know, a bottom and two ridges doing that. You know yeah, what I mean? So, exactly, exactly. And play that game during those times of the year on where you're set up. Yeah. Man, I've kept you here long enough, dude. We've been going at it for like an hour and 45 minutes or something like that. I want to be sensitive to your time. I appreciate you spending all this time with me. I have one last hard question for you that I always like to end with. You ready? It's going to be the hardest one of the whole night. You ready? All right. I'm ready. All right. So you're building a three-on-three basketball team of DIY public land whitetail bow hunters. What three guys would you pick to be on your team if you had to have three guys fill tags, who are the three guys you're putting on your team? So you want actual names. Yeah. Actual, actual names. And they don't have to be, they don't have to be alive. They can be dead alive. They could be people right. that, that you don't even know that you just know of, you know, and they don't have to be known. They could be people that are just local that are just killers. Okay. Gosh, I know some good ones. Uh, well, Hundred percent. I'm putting Andre DeQuisto on with me. Oh yeah, Andre's a beast, and yeah. he will do whatever it takes to get it done. And he's very proven, and he's thinks way outside of the box. And Andre and I hunt totally different uh, habitat and terrain deer, mm-hmm. but he's one guy that when I listen to Andre talk, I pick something up from. Yeah, it's um, I, and, I, I, and I'm talking about a guy that I think could come out and do this with me out here in the mountains. Oh yeah, dude. I have no doubt. It's I, I've had a chance to talk to Andre one time at a at a show. I, I'm, I'm you know friends with Cody. I know Cody and stuff like that. And I didn't get to meet Andre until like a couple years ago. And the thing that I noticed about him, and then I'll let you finish picking your three, was um, and this was something that I found with like you know guys like yourself and just guys who are really good 
archery, like really good bow hunters that kill mature, big mature deer, is that when he and I was talking, he was intently listening to everything that I was talking about because he was genuinely looking to see like, is there something I can pick up from this guy? Is he going to say something exactly. that maybe I didn't think of, or he think he thinks of something differently than the way I do that I can use. And that's the exactly. biggest thing that I notice with guys like that. And like yourself that are just like, that are next level dudes. They're always looking for the edge and they don't care where it comes from. And they're humble in, in their, in their quest to find it essentially. So, yep. but anyway. and I think you nailed it. They don't talk over the top of it. They listen. Yeah. Yep. Now Andre's that way. You know, I'm fortunate. I don't, I don't, know if you know this but i work with andre and whitetail addictions guys yeah um film for him and do that stuff but mm -hmm. he's always impressed me since i met him personally of just just how he really thinks big picture and above and beyond what a lot of people are thinking and a lot of times it's hard for people to understand what andre's saying at first until you really yourself have been out there enough to see what he sees mm -hmm. if that makes sense yeah, it totally does. Okay, my number two. I got three, right? Yep. Yes, sir. All right. This is the guy that when I was young that I truly believe had some stuff figured out before a lot of guys and was doing a DIY hardcore, and that's Miles Keller. Mm -hmm. Miles is a wonderful man. He's a very humble, hardcore. He's killed so many big whitetails. Um, you know, way back in the day when I – was trying to find some information that was actually applicable for mountain whitetails when I was really young. You know, Miles was talking about things like wind edges and hunting wind that was good for a buck and not you, things like that. Yeah. And you look at Miles' history, great guy, super humble, but man, did he, he's a killer. He was a killer. He's, I really, I've always really liked Miles. Mm -hmm. um, so Miles and Andre, and now I'm going to go with the young guy on the next one because I got to, you know, I'm picking all the old dudes and I'm an old dude. <laughs> so now I got to go with the young one. I think he'll like this. And I, there's several I could pick and I'm going to piss somebody off that I didn't pick them. And it's not because they don't deserve it. There's, you know, I can pick Cody all day. Right. But I'm going to, I hope Cody listens to this, but he, he might, I could pick Cody all day. He's a freaking animal. Yeah, he is. But I'm not going to pick Cody because everybody picked Cody. But I'm telling you, Cody deserves Cody's freaking. He's a beast. And yeah. I love how he does his own thing his own way, too. I'm going to go with, and this is a guy that's always impressed me. He's a good friend of mine. And the reason he's a good friend of mine is really impressed me is just how smart he is about everything. He's very smart, meticulous. Um, I got to say Steve Pink's, too. He needs to be on this list. But I told you I wasn't going to pick an old guy like me. So I'm going <laughs> to go with the young guy, guy younger than me. Very smart. I've been able to share some hunts with him. Uh, he just really, really put everything into it. And he's an extremely hardworking, intelligent guy. Uh, Justin Hollinsworth. I put mm. Justin out there because Justin's going to kill a buck. Andre's going to kill a buck. And I don't know if Miles still hunts like he used to, but Miles' heyday, he's killing a buck. Right. Guaranteed. So I'll go with Justin, Miles, Andre. Man, that is a uh, that is a that is a three on three team that I think most people don't want to see in the tournament. I'm just <laughs> I, I I truly believe this. 
most bucks wouldn't want to deal with those three guys. I would, uh, I would, uh, you would get no arguments from me. We'll put it that. We'll put it and that I way. will say that I will say this too. Those are three guys, and this may sound cocky, but it, but it may, it may. But those are three guys that I think could actually come out into my neck of the woods. And I'm telling you, this this country is a, it's an obstacle, big mm-hmm. time, for sure. I think they could adapt, overcome, and because. Every one of those guys has grit. I mean, they're just hardcore. Nothing's one of the biggest things those guys have is mental toughness. They don't let anything get them down. Um, that's what I admire about them. I feel like I'm that kind of guy too. Nothing ever phases them. Their target best buck they've ever hunted gets killed. They move on. You know, I'm that same mentality. You just move on, yeah. and you always have, and you always have an ace in the hole or two or three extras to move to. You know, that's how prepared they are. But my whole point is they could, I believe that those three guys could figure it out anywhere, any habitat, get it figured out and adjust and be flexible and be a killer anywhere. That's why I picked them. Makes sense, man. And you're, like I said, you'll, uh, <coughs> excuse me, you'll get no, uh, you'll get no arguments from me. Like those are, those are a handful of names that you'd be hard pressed to find, uh, to find better folks, man. But, uh, dude, I appreciate your time, man. I've, I've, dude, I could sit and talk to you for four hours. Like, so, <laughs> so I, uh, well, I love white belt, man. And yeah. I like talking about and it. And you got me fired up, man. I'm headed to the big woods this weekend for my first hunt on that new piece that I spent some time trying to figure out this winter and spring. And, uh, you got me pretty fired up to go chase some mountain whitetails this weekend. So I appreciate that too. Right on, man. Well, good luck to you, Clint. It's been a, been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed it. And maybe we'll get back on and talk after we kill some stuff or maybe some shed hunting stuff in the spring. Sounds good, man. Where can more people uh, follow along with what you got going on this year? Are they, you uh, social media, anything like that where they can, where they can track you? Oh yeah. My Instagram is where I, I communicate with guys. I really try to make sure I talk to anybody that reaches out to me and I help out. Um, on my Instagram, it's, mountain mtn underscore man 33 mountain man 33 uh mountain mtn underscore man 33 and i got a lot of that's where i do most of my hunt and talk traffic is there guys can guys can find me there my facebook's pretty full like it's you know maxed out um and then lone wolf custom gear uh part of the whitetail addictions team uh mobile hunters we talk whitetails all the time on our mobile hunters page. Facebook is a really great page for guys that are getting into it. And then uh, Buck Fever Synthetics too. I they're really good to me. I've rep rep their brand for decades, and I actually have my mix here that I send all over the country if I want it. Or if they're not interested in my mix and guys want to get Buck Fever Synthetics, they can pull it right up Buck Fever uh, you, BuckFever.com. Yep. Cool. All right, man. I appreciate you, buddy. Good luck this season. And we'll definitely have to, uh, to get back on here once, uh, hopefully once we both fill a few tags. Sound good. Yeah, sounds good. I'm, I've, I've had the elk bug this month, but I'm telling you, I'm, I'm ready. I'm, I've got some big white tails. It's time to go get after him in October. All right, man. Well, I look forward to some grip and grin pictures on your Instagram profile, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> hey, same, same, same for you. Same to you. And, uh, thanks again. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And while you're at it, head over to YouTube and give us a sub there too. I'd be super appreciative if you do those couple things for me. 
Before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tether, Spartan Forge, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skull Brew Coffee Company, and Maven Optics. And until next time, we'll see y'all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do hard shit hat for those of us who like to embrace microdosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'll be over there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.